Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 6. If you're not already there, let's open it up to John chapter 6. We have been taking a walk through the Gospel of John. We took a break last week to talk about the renewal of our minds and our values, but we've been taking a walk through the Gospel of John, taking a fresh look at Jesus. I think this is something that we as believers want to do, and as, as a church, We'll do a number of series, but we'll always come back to a gospel because we do feel like looking at Jesus, that's that's kind of our primary purpose here, is is to consistently take a fresh look at Jesus. And the gospel of John, the gospel according to John, is a unique retelling of the life and significance of Jesus. And just in case, if if you've gotten a little lost or you're you're new or you're newer to our community, where we left off in chapter 6, Jesus had gathered the largest crowd to date he had gathered in the Gospel of John. We had said it was 5,000 military-aged males, right? We oftentimes hear of the feeding of the 5,000, and we just think a big group of people. But for those of who were hearing this the first time, they heard 5,000 men gathered there thinking, these 5,000 men are mustering a militia. And rather than mustering a militia, Jesus decides to do something significant, especially around the Passover, that he decides to give them sustenance, to give them bread, and to essentially feed them all with the little kids' lunchables. Right? That he, he, he takes a small amount, and he just breaks it and breaks it and breaks it and starts handing it out, and it starts to feed everybody. It's this miraculous feeding. And like one of the, like all the other signs in the Gospel of John, there are seven of them. If you remember that the, the Gospel of John, like if it's Sesame Street, it's brought to you by the number seven. Everything is seven. We're going to hear an I am statement. There's seven I am statements. There's seven, uh, there's seven uh, discourses. There's seven, there's seven of a lot of things in the Gospel of John. He is intentional about putting this together. Like I said, it's a unique retelling of the story of Jesus. And so miraculously, he feeds them. And one of the things that we noted is that in chapter 6, John means to draw some parallels between things that happened in the Old Testament that were formative for the people of Israel and things now that Jesus is doing that are essentially reformative for the people. And in this case, we notice that there were parallels that John is drawing between Moses and the Exodus generation and what Jesus is doing in chapter 6. Just if you go back really quickly to chapter to verse 2, 6-2, he gathers a large crowd together. This is and that they saw the signs that he was doing. This sounds a lot like Moses and the Exodus. That he went up onto a mountain and then he sat down with his disciples. This is like Moses going up to the mountain with the elders. And that and just in case you you don't catch this John says, and it's Passover. Like, okay, everybody, are we all on board here? And then Jesus provides miraculous bread for these folks to eat. And, of course, this is drawing this parallel that manna from heaven, just like Moses provided manna from heaven to this large group of people during the Exodus, that Jesus is doing this. And, and, then be, and just as we're at, the, we're at the point of saying, oh, I get it, John, Jesus is the new Moses. Like, Jesus is the new Moses. Just when we're getting to that point, John's like, before you go there, Jesus is not, he's no Moses. Because when Moses wants to go to the other side of the sea, what does he do? 
He plants a staff in the ground, the wind blows, and it parts the waters and he walks across on dry, on dry land. But if you look back in chapter 6, when Jesus wants to go across the Sea of Galilee, what does he do? He doesn't part the sea. He just walks right on it. He doesn't take the posture of Moses to part the sea. He takes the posture of the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, where it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. That Jesus is no Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is walking on the sea, trampling the chaos, trampling underfoot the abyss, sin, and death, which is what water in these large bodies of water represented in the ancient world, in the Jewish mind, as he gets to the boat, what does he say? The ESV doesn't do it justice. He says, it is I. They're afraid. He says, it is I. But it says, I am. And Moses never said, I am. The only time Moses ever heard, I am, was when he was at the burning bush, and he asked, God, who should I say is sending me to these people? And God says, you can call me, I am. And so Jesus is no Moses. He's greater than Moses. And just as, just as we're seeing these parallels and we're seeing that Jesus could be the new Moses, no, 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 no. Jesus is the God of Moses. And this is the, what the signs, these signs are pointing to this. And so he's not simply like Moses, he's greater than Moses. He's not go doing it the Moses style, he's doing it the spirit of God at creation of the world style. So that's the backdrop that we're at when we take a look at this next section, this next seeking, this next section about Jesus. You guys with me? Wanted to get us back up uh, uh, on, on board here. And again, I'm just kind of like, again, I can't hear any reaction from anybody. So I'm just going, I'm going to assume that you guys are tracking, okay? So if we turn to uh, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 22 is where we picked it up. We, we didn't get, we, the reading, I didn't want to read like 70 verses, okay? And Sarah was very happy about that. It was long enough, right? It had a lot in there. There was a lot there. But if we go back to verse 22, okay, one of the things that we've noted in the Gospel of John is that every time Jesus performs a sign, every time Jesus does a miracle, every time Jesus performs a sign, and this is something that John wants us to see, every time he performs a sign, there's going to be confusion and misunderstanding that surround it. It either happens on the front side, like Mary asks him, hey, they ran out of wine back in Cana, and he's like, what does this have to do with me? Like, she misunderstands. Yet he does it anyway, but he does it in secret. Like nobody can really see. Only the servants know about it. And so, and then when he heals this, he heals the servant or the um, he heals the servant of the of the official. He does it from a distance. So Jesus is not around. And when he heals the man at the pool, he like heals him. Then he walks away, and he, they're like, where, "Where where's the guy who healed you?" He's like, "I don't know where he went." So all of this, whenever Jesus performs a sign, I suppose this is the same way it is today. Oftentimes when miracles happen, signs happen, really the, what, what is really confusing is just how do we interpret these things? And whenever Jesus does this, there is this confusion. And, and it, nothing is more confusing than even after these two signs. The feeding of the 5,000, they want to make him king, and he's like, I'm out of here. I didn't come here to aspire to political office. That's not what I came to do. And then when he walks on water, he, so he comes back, he comes back, and in verse 22, in verse 22, 
Everybody's looking for him. Again, misunderstanding. They're like, where did he go? We, he didn't leave on a boat. Like, <laughs> he walked on water, guys. And this is the one thing about John. When we read in John, John's a great book because John lets us in on the secret. And as we see the misunderstanding, we're like, oh, they can't see it, can they? They don't know, do they? We as the readers, we're let in on this. We're let in. And so these, this irony, the sarcasm, all the irony, even the humor of John, we can get as readers, and John lets us in kind of behind the scenes. And in verse 24, it says, So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And this is going to be an important thing. And on your outline, you can see in your, in your handout, on your outline, this is going to begin this section from verse 22 through verse 46 is all this question about what in the world actually are all these people seeking? Because it's not really Jesus that they're looking for. And so as we look at this, there's a number of things in, in 625, Jesus calls out what they're actually seeking. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And of course, you, it's interesting because they're like, how did you get here? And, and the reader's like, well, he came from heaven. And they're like, they don't even know. But he says, and then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because your stomachs were filled with the loaves. And one of the things what Jesus is doing here and just, if you ever lead 5,000 military-age males, I just want to give you some, some clues on how to, how to do it and how not to do it. And what Jesus is doing is how not to do it. What he's saying is, in the ancient world, when, when you said that you, are, you, you came because of your stomach, what you're saying is that you're a fool. Later on in the New Testament, he'll talk about people whose gods are their stomach. In the Roman world, if you told somebody you're ruled by your stomach, you are saying you're an idiot. You're a fool. And so what Jesus is saying, all these people, all these guys that are following him, he's like, you're ruled by your stomach. You're foolish. He's not even because you saw the signs. I mean, we can respect seeing the signs, but if you're ruled by your stomach, you're, an, you're a fool. So then he goes on to say, and this is going to just, this whole thing, everything Jesus is going to say, he's going to say one thing and they hear another. He says, do not work or do not labor. If you have the ESV, it says, do not labor for the food that perishes. It's better to hear, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. What do you think Jesus is trying to say there? He's trying to say, look, God has set his seal on the Son of Man, me. Now, what do they all hear? The only thing they hear, look at the next verse. They say, well, what must we do to do the works of God? All they hear is work. What do we have to do to do the works of God? So Jesus is trying to direct them to him on whom the Father has set his seal, but all they hear is about work. They're like, well, what do we have to do to do the work of God? He's like, okay, so Jesus tried to steer them again back to him. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in he whom he sent. And then once again, somewhat clueless, in verse 30, they said, well, then what sign do you do? And Jesus has got to be like, oh, my gosh. Like, how much more bread do you guys want? 
Were you not there? Like, were you on the hillside? Did you not see? <laughs> I mean, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work, again, back to work, what work do you do? What work do you perform? And then they say, then they go on to say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And we as readers are like, oh my gosh, can it be not be any more clear that Jesus has given them the bread already? Like what, these people are clueless. I just fed 5,000 of you with a kid's lunch. You want more signs? You want manna? And was that bread too earthly for you? You want bread from heaven? And this is the interesting thing about this, is that um, Moses, the, the Jewish thought of the day was this. When they, when they were reading Exodus 16 and God providing manna from heaven, the idea was this, that God had this huge storehouse in heaven of heavenly bread, of, of manna. And that this huge storehouse of manna was just was up in heaven. And that this is, what, this is what God ate. This is what the angels ate. It was all up in heaven. And that what Moses says is, hey, these people are hungry. Will you feed them? And God, at Moses' request, opens the storehouse of manna and starts to give it down to the people. And what it sounds like they're asking for here, the understanding is that when the prophet who was to come was to come into the earth, when the Messiah was to come... There was an expectation that the Messiah would then be able to request God to reopen the storehouse and that manna from heaven would come back down. And in some ways, what what we think might be happening here is that they're like, okay, we know you gave us bread, miraculous bread, good job, we're great. But what we're really looking for, what we're really looking for is the one who can make that request of God and God could open up the storehouse of manna to re-come in these last days. And what Jesus is saying, what, what they say, so our fathers ate man in the wilderness, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And probably they're asking, we know you just multiplied loaves and fish, but can you open the manna storehouse? That would really show us that you're someone special, if you can do that. And Jesus Jesus is going to have none of He's going to, again, try to redirect them. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, look, I know you're impressed with Moses, but truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It wasn't because of Moses that the manna came down. It was because God, God was the one who made that decision to give you manna. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're completely missing it. Look at verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. Now, I'm not sure how Jesus responded to this. We have words, like books are great. It, it's nice to see the words on the page. But I don't, you don't know how like, frustrated Jesus is getting here. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to explain to someone something and like you're saying one thing and they're hearing another. Has anybody ever had this experience before? Like every customer service line you might have ever been on and you're like, you're ready to like slam the, like it, it's just everything you say, you're saying one thing, they're hearing another. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. And I don't know exactly what we, I don't know the tone but I think at some point Jesus just says, like, they're like, man, I'm Moses. And he's like, I'm the bread. 
I'm the bread. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Don't you people understand a metaphor? Okay, so he says, so essentially, and again, I don't know if that's the case. Maybe I'm just projecting my own frustrations onto Jesus. That might be the case. But in this dialogue, we have to understand that there is this tension that's built up. They're not getting it. And Jesus has got to say plainly, if you look in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. And it's so interesting. The mishearing, you would think like this is going to clear it all up. But it doesn't. Because in verse 41 it says, So the Jews grumbled, which is what the Israelites did in the wilderness. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So he says, I am the bread, and all they hear is Jesus said he came down from heaven. And they're like, don't we know his father and mother? Isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? Essentially, they miss it one more time. Jesus is trying to communicate to them that he's the bread, and all they can hear is that came down from heaven. And that's when Jesus notes the truth that there are times where you can talk and talk and talk to somebody, but unless God is going to open eyes and ears, it doesn't make a difference. And a lot of this passage is about the sovereignty of God and God calling people to himself and God opening minds and opening ears and opening eyes. That's not the point that I want to kind of hammer home today, but it certainly is in this passage if you read it. What I want to focus on today is I simply want to ask this question, what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? What is he saying? What does he mean by I am the bread of life? And so there's a couple of things I want to know. There's three places where he talks about He talks about himself as the bread of life. He talks about the bread that came down from heaven. And he calls himself the living bread. Okay? So I want to just say a couple things about the idea what is bread in the ancient world, especially the ancient Jewish world or the Middle Eastern world. If this was in, like, ancient Asia, he probably would have said, I am the rice of the world. Because bread, bread is a staple food of the ancient world. Every meal had bread as a part of it. This is how you ate. It was grain. It was a grain society. People would make bread. They would grind. Same way we make bread today, probably without all the processing, but they would grind the grain down, and they would knead it with oil, and they would make it. It would rise, and then they would bake it. This would be the way bread was consumed. Bread, every meal would have bread. Bread was how you knew if you had food. Do you have bread? Bread was actually synonymous for food. At the beginning of every meal, the stock thanksgiving prayer of every Jew was, thank you, Lord, God of heaven and earth, you bring forth bread from the earth. That was the prayer. They thanked God for bread at the beginning of every meal. And Jesus refers to himself as, I am the bread of life. And what he's saying is that he is, whatever, whatever life, however you get life, what, however caloric intake works, whatever it means about bread, whatever it is when you eat food, you eat bread, and you live because of that, what Jesus is saying is that I am the reason why you live. If you consume this bread, this will cause life. 
Jesus refers to himself as the bread that has come down from heaven. And of course, the Jews are talking about manna, these manna storehouses. And what Jesus is saying is, that's a great story. And maybe there are manna storehouses in heaven. But the, tr- the, bread, the real bread that God has sent down is me. Don't look forward to, to miraculous bread from heaven. I am the miraculous bread from heaven. I am the living bread. Life is in me. I am the bread of life. Look at verse 48. We'll pick it up from where Sarah read. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Manna was good for a day. Give us this day our daily bread. It was great that Sarah prayed that and tied this in. Give us this day our daily bread. It's probably an allusion to manna when Jesus says this, but what our prayer is, give us what we need for the day to live, and that is Jesus. Your fathers ate bread, manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread. Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this is when he's going to begin to move into this idea about what does it mean? What does it mean to eat of this bread? What does it mean to consume Jesus? What does it mean to eat this bread of life? Bread is my flesh. The bread is better than manna. It gives life. It comes from heaven. It gives spiritual life and physical life. And Jesus says, this bread is my flesh. And this is where we begin to see that Jesus is talking more about himself, but also about his impending death and his coming sacrifice, that he's going to give himself for sustenance. In 654, he says something that is going to be very controversial. 653, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you're like, is Jesus a vampire? Like, like is, is he a zombie? Is he a vampire? Like, what is this idea about eating flesh and drinking blood? Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, do you hear this? Eating, feeding, drinking, like this is all consuming. Whoever consumes me, they will have life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And he says plainly in verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now there's a number of ways this statement can be heard. And I want to talk all the way from how these original hearers heard this statement, eat my flesh and drink my blood, to how this has been interpreted in the history of the church, particularly on a day when we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper, okay? And just talk a little bit about that. Okay, let's go back, way back machine, 2,000 years ago. How did these people hear this? First of all, the idea of eating flesh and drinking blood is decidedly not kosher. 
Okay, that's, that's the first thing that we have to run this through. As a matter of fact, in, in Jewish thought, when you talked about eating someone's flesh, that's what you said about your enemies. It was kind of, an, it was kind of this like offensive thing like that you would say to your enemies, like, I'm gonna, we're going to eat your children. Like, it's like a horrible idea. Like, but it's how you, if you're going to dominate a, an enemy, like a military enemy, you talk about your children will be food for us. This is what the spies said before they went to the promised land. They said, it's filled with giants. The Nephilim are in the land, and our children are going to be their food. So they're like, I, Jesus is saying you've got to eat my flesh? Okay, and then it says you've got to drink my blood. Now that's particularly a big-time no-no in the Torah. Like you can't even eat meat that's undercooked in Torah that still has blood in it. Like, rare meat is a no-no in Jewish thought. It's not kosher. As a matter of fact, meat with blood in it was oftentimes considered something that pagan sacrifices would have blood in them. Like, I know it's gross, and I know that causes people to cry. And I get that, because that, that, I would be crying too if I heard this too in the, in the first century. But this idea that if anyone eats my flesh and drinks my blood, this is, this is, all, this is all very, well, for one, this is not only shocking, this is actually offensive. It's not just shocking, it's offensive, it's, it's scandalous. There, essentially what people are saying is there's no apologetic for this. And eventually this is what is going to cause a number of people to just say, I'm out. I'm out, I can't explain this. I can't follow this guy because I can't explain what the heck he's talking about. And what he's talking about is offensive and scandalous. So eating me with blood in it was a sin. Outright drinking of blood was something that only pagans did. So that's the first century. Now, when we fast forward a little bit to when John wrote this, there's a very good chance that there had been this, the idea of the Lord's Supper had already been in play around during that time. That if, if you have the, the Gospels being written in certain times, probably Mark was first and then Matthew and Luke somewhere in there. John is probably later because we've talked about him being a supplemental gospel. And if John is writing about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, he's probably thinking back to the words of institution, take and eat, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me, right? So there's probably some sense in which he's bringing to mind to readers in the day that he's writing this that Jesus is saying something about yeah, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and as the reader, you're like, oh, he's talking about the Lord's Supper here, okay? There's probably some of that that's going on here as well. Now, there's also a number of people, as, as the church history goes on, what we start to see is that the act of eating the Lord's Supper together becomes what we call a sacrament. Actually, what some people call a sacrament, we would probably call it an ordinance that Jesus has ordained it, but it's not a sacrament. And basically what the idea is, is that there are some traditions, like the Roman Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the, um, uh, the Anglican or Episcopal traditions, and that talk about this idea, like in the Roman Catholic tradition, it's probably the closest to this idea, that when the priest says the blessing over the elements, the bread and the wine, that they have, it's what they call, again, geek mode here, everybody put your seatbelts on, or wake up when you want to, um, is they call it transubstantiation. That as the, as, the, as the priest says the blessing over the elements, there's a mystical transformation of the elements into the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. The fact that it looks like bread and looks like wine, that's what they call accidental properties. 
So it's called transubstantiation. This is what I grew up, I grew up Roman Catholic, and this is what I was told, that it's actually the, the actual body and the actual blood of Jesus. That's why at the end, if you go to a Roman Catholic mass and they have leftovers, the priest is up there like eating the whole thing because they can't have any leftovers because it actually has turned into the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, so all that to say, that's, that's one of the things. If you go to like an Anglican church or an Eastern Orthodox church, they talk about the idea that as the priest says the blessing over it, that the, the, the bread and the wine actually, they contain the real presence of Jesus. If you go to a Lutheran church, they'll talk about what is called consubstantiation, which is that the body and blood of Jesus are not the bread and the wine, but they're in, with, and under all the elements. You guys with me? I mean, you guys are probably like, bing. If you go to a Presbyterian church, they would talk about Jesus being spiritually present in the elements. Like you can get the idea that a lot of people have different ideas about this. In, in kind of our tradition, the evangelical free, as well as what we would call radical reformation, Protestant radical reformation, they would look at it as symbolic, that this is a metaphor, that as we take the bread and the, and the, the juice, because we're Christians, <laughs> wine, I'm just kidding. Um, but the, the idea is we take the elements, that this is a symbol, it's symbolic, of the body and blood of Jesus. But you get the idea that there are different, different traditions look at this passage in different ways, especially since in the Gospel of John, when you get to the Last Supper, it doesn't have the words of institution. This is my body broken for you. It doesn't have that. Only in Mark, Luke, and Matthew does it have those words. So in John, okay, did I go geek mode enough? Can I shift out of that gear for just a second? Thank you very much. All right, all this to say the idea of what is Jesus talking about, about bread, what I don't think he's talking about here, eating his body and drinking his blood, though I do believe that that does have an allusion to what we're going to do this morning, that what we're doing this morning is part of that process of taking Jesus into us. It's actually, we symbolize that as we participate in the Lord's Supper today. But what we're doing, what we're essentially trying to do today is we are trying, we're trying to abide in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is one part of that, but there's other ways that we eat the Lord's flesh and drink his blood on a day-to-day basis. We take him in. This passage is not simply about the Lord's Supper, but all of these ideas, whether you're Roman Catholic or Anglican, or Presbyterian, or Eastern Orthodox, or Evangelical Free, or you're non-denominational, or you're just a theological refugee, which I would imagine that's what we have. We have a denominational refugee camp here today, okay? That's what I'm imagining. All of these point to kind of the mysterious idea about how it is that we have Christ in us. How, how do we get Jesus into us? And how in the world is it true that I am in him? And so there is, as we come to this idea, when Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, one of the things that we need to understand is that Jesus, I think primarily is using a metaphor, Okay, I think that, thank you very much. We got a lot of amens on that. I think it's primarily a metaphor, but it's also this, I, this mystical, this almost mystical and mysterious idea about somehow or other, God has thought what needs to happen is that Christ has to get 
into me. And that what I'm going to do for them is I am going to seat Jesus, I'm going to seat them with Christ in heaven, that they are going to be in Christ. How in the world does that happen? And I'm here to say categorically that I don't know. Can you, like, should we pound the pulpit on? I don't know. Like, that, you're like, why did I even come this morning, okay? Like, I'm taking my, my tithing back and the whole thing. Look, there's a, there's a certain point, there's a certain point when you come to mystery that you're like, look, get the long snapper out, it's time to punt. Like, it's fourth down, and I don't know. Like, bring the punter out, we're going to punt it, okay? We're not going to go for it. Like, there's a point where we get to, like, God has, I don't know how it happens, I just know that it does, C.S. Lewis had this great, this great um, phrase, this teaching on the atonement. He's like, look, how does the atonement, how does Jesus' death on the cross come to apply to you and me? He says, look, there's lots of theories about how that works. We could talk about Christus Victor. We could talk about penal substitution. We could talk about, I mean, we could talk about all kinds of, we could talk about vicarious sacrifice. We could talk about all kinds of different ideas. But he says, what's important is that it does. He says, we have, all kinds of, we have all kinds of theories about how, about nutrition and how what you eat is ingested into you and how it affects your health. Uh, can we, like, do we have a lot of uh, ideas out there about how that happens? If you ever tried to lose weight, you know that there are so many ideas out there about how you ingest food and what kind of food you need to ingest in order to do, like, there's all kinds of theories. And what, what C.S. Lewis says is, look, we have this theory of like vitamins and minerals and calories. We have all these theories. But if one day we would chuck those theories, it wouldn't stop us from eating dinner. Our goal, our goal is not to find the right theory. Our goal is to feast on Jesus. However that look, whatever that looks like, and we're, I'm going to talk a little bit at the end. You're like, you're not at the end. Hang with me here. We're going to land the plane in just a second. I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea of abiding. I'm going to talk about abiding. But before I do that, let's finish out the passage. Look at 660. Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when that happens... Some of his disciples say, I'm out. I'm out. I've been following. I've been interested. I've been listening. I'm done. 660, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And what they're saying is, this is offensive. This is pagan offensive. It's shocking. It's offensive. And what Jesus says is that he asks, are you guys scandalized by this too? Like, this is a scandal. What they're essentially saying is like, I'm out because I have no apologetic to explain what in the world he's talking about. And if I were to be his follower, I would be on the hook for this statement. And I can't be on the hook for this statement. Not for my family, not for my place in society. I can't be on the hook for this guy. And as we look in 660, 
He says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Like, what, what are you going to say when you see me going up to heaven? Like, I came down from heaven, and I'm going up to heaven. Like, are you going to be offended when I go back up to heaven? It's the Spirit who gives life. Now, this is interesting. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, even though he's just talked about eating the flesh. He's really saying, look, you guys, you've missed it. What you need, you, the Spirit has got to do this work. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. Verse 65, and this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, this is a, this is a crushing verse. After this, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Then Jesus turns to the twelve, who he handpicked. And he said, do you want to go away as well? And then Simon Peter, who in the other Gospels gives the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Caesarea Philippi, that this kind of moment of clarity. Simon Peter steps up, and he says something I think probably at some point we all have to get into our hearts and he says, on behalf of the other 12, he says, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Like we're going to hang, even though we're on the hook for this teaching that nobody can explain, we're on the hook for it. Where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And then he goes on to say again. And this is probably what, the God, what John, the writer, is aiming for among all those who are reading this that want to follow Jesus, that they would say something like this. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Some leave, but these guys stay. Whether it's out of desperation, where else are we going to go? Or whether it's out of conviction, only you have the words of eternal life. So what is our take-home as we think about this, as we think about this passage of Jesus as the bread of life? What does this mean? Jesus is saying here that he is real food, that he essentially, as much as we love food, I love food. Uh, last night I was watching diners, dive-ins, and drive, dives? Drive-in, diners, drive-ins, and dives. Anybody? And it's just all this unhealthy food. It's the most awesome thing in the world. Um, and I'm just like, yes, food. Food is awesome. Food is awesome. Especially I've been sick, so I haven't been able to taste things as well. So, you know, once you've been sick, and sometimes you get a cold, and it's like, it's a hungry cold. Does anybody have that? And you're like, self-report, like it's just food, 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 right? What Jesus is saying is, whatever the function that food is in your life, Jesus wants to replace that function. I know it sounds weird, Whatever it means to be sustained in your life, 
Jesus wants to leapfrog to the top of that. Doesn't mean you get rid of food, but that Jesus is the Jesus fulfills the archetypical uh, function of what food is: the manna from heaven, the bread he produced on the hillside. Any other food that humanity can invent are simply shadows of the sustenance that Jesus can bring into a life. That having Jesus in you, consuming Jesus, is actually the difference between real life and real death. Everything else is just fine print. And what does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Look at 54, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Now look back at verse 40. Look back at verse 40. If you look back at verse 40, he kind of explains what he means by eating and drinking. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So which is it? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood or looking on him and believing? And the answer is yes. It's both of those things. And what Jesus is ultimately talking about is this idea of abiding. Abiding is a term we're going to see it. We're going to see it in spades in chapter 15 about the vine and the branches and abiding. But the idea of abiding here, look at 55, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And this idea of the, this eating metaphor and all this, we're actually very familiar with this in our English language, all, all the metaphors. Like, um, like when you read a book you really like, you devour the book. When you see a sunset you like, and you look at it for a long time, you drink it in, Right? That when we, when we believe tall tales, we swallow tall tales. We ruminate on matters. We chew on ideas. We even eat our own words sometimes. No laughs. Nobody's ever done. Okay. Um, doting grandparents eat up their grandkids, right? Do I hear an amen out there from anybody? All right, there you go. Plenty of grandparents out there. What Jesus is saying is that who I am and what I've done on the cross, I want you to chew on, I want you to swallow, I want you to think about, I want you to drink it in, I want you to eat it up, I want it in you. I want it in you. Put it on your plate, put it before you. Think about me, meditate on me, consider me abide in me i will abide in you i think for me when i think about abiding even though this is i know this is mysterious and mystical there are ways like we can get into the word you get into the word spend time in prayer like there's all kinds of ways that we do this in the christian tradition about abiding but the the kind of the basic sense of abiding is this idea of like Put Jesus before you and try to get him into you, knowing that the Spirit is going to be part of that. The Spirit is going to open your eyes, open your ears. As you meditate on him, as you ruminate on him, as you think about him, you get him into you. There is a way that God does this. Apart from our abilities, God gets us into you. And what we talked about is this idea of faith. I'm going to trust. 
I'm going to face God in a posture of trust, and I'm going to entrust my life to him, and he is going to get that Christ is going to come in me. He's going to live in me. Remember we talked about my heart, Christ's home? Like, he's going to come in, and as he comes in, I will be in him. He will be in me. I think for me, maybe the primary way this is, if there's, as I think about just for me how this has happened, this idea of kind of getting, of, of thinking about Jesus and meditating on Jesus. I spent a lot of time in school too, but basically this idea. When I first came to faith in Jesus, I think the question that got me the most when I, when I started to think about, what does it mean to have Christ in me? I started to think about what must it have been like to follow him? Like when I read this, when I read these passages and I read the gospels, I'm like, what must he have been like? And for me, that question, I can't tell you how much that question has propelled me into God's word, into God's presence through prayer, into a community of people who know more than I do, who I can learn from, who I can serve alongside, homes that I can go in and experience hospitality. Like, what must it have been like to be at table with Jesus? Well, maybe these people have invited us over. Like, what is that like? Like, what does it mean to go to the Father in prayer? I could read about what Jesus said in prayer. What must it have been like to follow him? As much as how awesome that would have been, like, how hard that must have been. Like, this must have been a very difficult moment. 5,000 military-age males, and they just start walking away, and you're left standing, and you're like, I thought we were on a roll here, Jesus. <laughs> like, no, 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 they don't get it, and you totally don't get it either. But I want to stick it out with you, and I want you to stick it out with me. What must he have been like? What is he like? I want his thoughts his sensibilities, his values in me. I want to see people like Jesus sees them. I want to abide in him. I want to see the world how he sees the world. And I don't know, I don't know what it is, what the question is that maybe gives you that fuel. Again, we could talk about all the different ways. Look, read your Bible. That's awesome. Pray. That's awesome. I don't know what it is, and I can tell you to do that, but I don't know what the questions are that propel you into those activities. I think it's different for every person. For me, that was my question. What must he have been like as I read this? What is he like? What would it have been like to follow him? That has propelled me into abiding in him. And I don't know, and again, I'm going to pound the pulpit. I don't know. But I have a hunch that you do. You know what it is? How has Jesus been compelling to you? I think I've got a friend, strong believer at one time, is in a season of deconstructing his faith. And um, that's what we call it now, (laughs) deconstructing faith. And the last time I had coffee with him, I just said, look, I just want you to see Jesus. I know the church, look, I I hate to tell you this, but the church is going to let you down. There's going to be times when you're like, yeah, this church sucks. 
okay? I, you're like, why am I even here this morning? Okay, you're, there are going to be times when the church lets you down. If you don't know that yet, some of you are like, you don't have to tell me that, okay? There are going to be times when the church lets you down. We're not here because of a church. We're here because we want a clear image of who Jesus is to be compelled to follow him, to abide in him, because there's something about abiding that I can't put a formula together to do it. I can give you some ideas, some better things, but there's something about what has drawn you to Jesus. And to answer that question, you don't need a preacher to tell you what it is. You've got to ask yourself, what is it that has drawn me to Jesus? The Father is the one who draws. And to ask this question and then to just lean into the question and say, Jesus, I don't know exactly how to do this, but I want you in here. I want you in. And I want to be in you. Somehow or another, that's what we call faith. Somehow or another, that's what we call abiding. And I would be dishonest if I would just say, here's the formula. It's not there. But you know why you have been drawn to Jesus. And that's, I think that's what he's saying here. And this is what Peter's saying is like, who else, who else have we been drawn to like you? Where else am I going to go? Everything else looks whatever compared to you. You have the words of eternal life. 